I'm Derek Wheatley and welcome to episode 96 of the Weekly Weekly Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us on YouTube or the podcast platforms, whichever you uh, decide on. Uh, thank you very much to Emma Finneran for coming on last week. Um, Emma's a life coach. If you haven't listened to it, go back and do so because uh, I learned a lot from it. And then we started talking about really random stuff, photography, serial killers, uh, just weird stuff. Uh, we got we got deep on it, but it's very interesting, and especially the life coach thing is great. Um, subscribe to our YouTube channel if you would. Thanks to everyone for your support, obviously, during the week and all that. But we're going to get into today's guest. Um, the hardest introduction I've had to write, um, trying to cover everything. Well, I'm just going to say one of Ireland's finest writers, uh, and she is Lisa McInerney. How are you doing, Lisa? Hello, how are you? That's not, I like to hear that. That is a difficult um, intro to write. <laughs> That's that's something I've achieved today. <laughs> there you go. It's it's like you you, you want to keep it short, but you also want to put in or like you know put in a couple of the, the novels just to say it and say that you did win the women's prize for fiction. And but we're going to get into all that anyway, so it's all mm. it's all one. But look, we'll start at the beginning like we always do, Lisa. Um, could you give us a short history of your upbringing, please? Yes. So um, I've had a bit of a I was going to say a funny upbringing, but actually it's not so uncommon in Ireland. So I was born in the early 1980s and at the time my mother was single and we still had the illegitimacy laws in Ireland, which were only gotten rid of, I think, in 1987. So I was raised then by my grandparents. They kind of uh, absorbed me into the the legitimate family. And so instead of being an only child, which is what I kind of feel like I am legally the youngest of nine. yeah, so it's a, bit, it's a bit funny, although the siblings in question are all like at least 20 years older than me, but yeah. still. Um, and yeah, I'm raised in South County Galway, uh, working class background. I feel like I mentioned this constantly and people are sick of it, but I do feel it's important. So I keep bringing it up. Yeah. Um, and that's it. Kind of um, in case anybody picks up on the strange dyadic accent, I kind of uh, popped between uh, Galway and Cork for a very long time so that, that'll probably come in when we're talking about the books um yeah but the working class thing like it's something you're very proud of though yeah I mean like I feel it's very important in terms of it, it's not just kind of like explaining family history it also very much shapes you what you mm-hmm. are what your expectations of life are anything you've kind of not necessarily struggled to overcome but different limitations that were put on you and how you kind of coped with that. And I feel like that's important. I think that that's, there's nothing wrong with with kind of crowing a bit about it or talking a bit about it, because I do find, especially in the creative arts, you do find a lot of people who come from backgrounds that are underrepresented, no matter what kind of background that is. And sometimes it helps to be told, mm-hmm. yeah, actually, it's doable. Somebody has, has gotten there before you. There is a path. You'll figure it out, you know, so often when I was when I was starting out writing, I often felt like um like almost like that I I put limitations on myself based on what I thought society was going to do or what I thought the industry was going to do and everyone kept saying oh publishing is extremely middle class and and you're not going to find a way through and I realized afterwards that a lot of these ideas that I had about those limitations were kind of Mm self-imposed so I think sometimes it, it does help to kind of make it make a bit of a song and dance about the fact that there are some diverse backgrounds coming through in in the creative arts yeah, and it's for for other people to aspire to, and it's it's kind of with something we've addressed when it comes to mental health as well, because we do need people who are, um, you know, out there in the public eye, uh, talking about it, because it does become easier then for people like me or or, or anybody else to kind of start, uh, realizing that it's a very normal thing, and these things happen to people. 
this is exactly it. I think just in general, knowing that you're not alone in some way or mm. that this, you know, whatever you were going through has been gone through before with varying different results. It can make you feel less like, oh, God, there's something wrong with me and more. Oh, God, this is this is a challenge that people overcome in life. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually going on, go on, on the mental health thing. When did you first become aware of mental health? Oh, God, very negatively, I'm going to mm. say, uh, unfortunately, there is a kind of um, history of mental illnesses and self-harm within my family. So things that I kind of was very young and not really noticing, per se, but being kind of told about in an age appropriate way. So for me, mental health, it was always kind of the other way around. It was always mental illness, mental illness mm. growing up. And kind of becoming aware of of the head and being part of or your mind being part of your physical health only when things went very, very wrong, mm. unfortunately. So it's I was thinking back over it and I was going, well, when did I become aware of this? And that's unfortunately the case. It was mm. because things were going wrong. I mean, I remember going to visit like um, my family members in psychiatric hospitals mm. and stuff growing up and kind of going, oh, this is grand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it's only kind of, I think, in very recent years, almost the idea of mental health being something that you can take care of as mm. part of, you know, your daily life and your daily attitude to life and something that has to be kind of maintained and looked after and given mind to rather than something that only comes up when things go very, very wrong. You know, so that's that's quite recent. But I was thinking, too, you know, um, maybe not as uncommon or not as 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 kind of new as I thought because I remember reading these these magazines when I was a teenager you know these magazines for girls and they all came from England and they were all kind of things like sugar and bliss and stuff and they yeah. were all loads and loads and loads like packed with problem pages constant problem pages and various different agony ants with different kind of specialities relationships or sex or bodies or stuff like that and that that was just constantly full of advice and going problems are normal and it helps to talk about them and be good, be kind to your friends and, and don't kind of destroy your social circle because of a boy and all this kind yeah. of stuff. In, in a strange way, I was thinking that is kind of that was the healthiest um, introduction to it as a subject. I think I got in a yeah. And in a magazine called Bliss, you know, it's kind of a, <laughs> it's 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 and it's great. Like, you know, but it's one of those things that you're right, though. It's like, um, you know, uh, it, we don't think of it as we need to look after and be on top of these things. Be f- like if something happens it's like when something happens and then it's yeah. like trying to scramble that was that's what happened to me it did happen and then I had to kind of scramble and it took a few years to kind of get you know out of there and into kind of where I felt all right again and you know we talked this question has always come up and it always gives me such a, a range of kind of interesting answers you know and I really like this question it's one that's probably my favorite question actually when I asked them but do you know here's a I, I like to ask one broad question every episode mm-hmm. And this is this is the broadcast of you, Lisa. Can you describe a day in the life for a, a writer? Oh, um, well, the thing is, it's all so different for each writer. So I could describe yeah. a day in the life of this writer. Yeah. Because, um, you know, there are some writers who'd really make you sick because they're talking <laughs> about like, oh, I got up at half past five uh, and I went and I ran a marathon and I was at the desk by seven with my <laughs> black coffee and I wrote 15,000 words. And I stopped by lunchtime. That's not me. Mm. Um, I do get up and I do actually go running. So that's a bit sickening too. But I don't <laughs> kind of get to the desk until maybe half 12, one right. o'clock of the day. And then I I kind of set um, a limit on myself or, or, or sorry, a goal for myself to write a thousand words. Right. 
And the thousand words, this is if I'm writing, because there's a lot of work as a writer that's admin as well and kind of answering emails, keeping on top of things and kind of organizing meetings and all this kind of stuff. Because you're you're self-employed in your business, unfortunately, mm. the boring stuff is there as well. But if I'm writing creatively, thousand words. And like the thing with that goal is they don't have to be a thousand great words. They don't mm. have to be words that I feel, my God, this is publishable. Give me a prize immediately. Yeah. You know? They could be a thousand words of which 700 are unusable, I might get rid of again tomorrow. But for me, I feel like I have to be doing, like hitting goals. That's kind of a a main thing for me to keep motivated and to kind of feel good about myself at the end of the day. So if I've done that, and it doesn't matter if I've finished that by four o'clock or if I haven't finished by dinner and I have to go back to the desk and afterwards, at least it's done. Mm. And I feel like I've achieved something. So that's me. And then in the the evening, I'll I'll wind down then after that, I'll eat. all around me at dinner <laughs> and then I'll wind down I'll, I'll either I'll, I'll read a book maybe although sometimes that can feel like work too mm. read a book or I might watch something or I might play a video game and try to get to bed then by 11 12 o'clock I'm very boring I've just realized <laughs> yeah, I'm I am a lot more boring than that Lisa trust me but but it, it, I think it's funny because I heard David Sedaris on it on a podcast the other day and and he was talking about and similar to what you're saying but it was more nine o'clock maybe to one o'clock I think he said where, mm. he, where he works and then I've heard like someone like Hunter S Thompson who's full of mescaline and and you know all sorts of chemicals uh, and he he's writing in the middle of the night so it's just oh, interesting God. to hear that intro you know it's interesting to hear that the idea of the different takes and you know whether it's hours or whether it's words and just that kind of thing you know it's interesting to me it's funny really because you do often hear about the really early morning writers or the real night owl writers mm. and I'm out here kind of blazing a trail for the afternoon writers yes I like it I let you know someone has to do it again we're talking that you can go back a pioneer. To... Pioneer. Um, so what like do you know what was fa- like for me when I first read your novel, The Glorious Heresies, okay, so obviously set in Cork, and my mom is from Cork, really? and yeah, and and you know, I, I was like, oh, you know, uh, then your your next novel novel comes out set in Cork, so obviously the same kind of characters, you know, that we're going through, but then I find out you're from Galway, <laughs> and for, and it got me thinking, and I know now I know what you were saying about flipping between, and I know you went to university in in, in Cork as well, but. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was this novel always are these novels always going to be in Cork or was there a chance they could have been in Galway no they were definitely they were always Cork like these characters and they came to me and and for me it always starts with characters and voices and dialogue and, and the way people interact so characters come first and then the kind of plot comes after that and they came into my head speaking in Cork accents I don't think the books could be set anywhere else they kind of very mm. much need uh, a, a certain geographical kind of size as well for the amount mm. of coincidences that happen and also equally the amount of anonymity you can get in a city the size of Cork as opposed to Galway where everybody knows everybody all the time you know there's slight there's a slight larger kind of sense of, of, of space in Cork and just um in general the Cork kind of way of thinking about oneself to the second city thing yeah I needed to to get that into so um no, they were they were always Corkonians in my head. I'm kind of it's funny, really. I think I'm going to try for the next project, maybe to write something that isn't Cork. But we'll have to see how the characters sound in my head. <laughs> yeah, it it suits it perfectly, like you say, though. And the the dialect of Cork is mm. something like because it's the whole Second City thing. And, uh, you know, fiction in Ireland is obviously um, set. A lot of it is set in Dublin. There's set in Limerick as well, of course. Yeah. Um, 
But but for something like that to be set in Cork, a trilogy to be, be set in Cork. Actually, the, the Cork trilogy, did, did you name it that or did someone else name it that? I don't think I ever came up with a, a unifying kind okay. of name for them. At the moment, I think my publisher is calling them the, the Unholy Trinity or something like that. And I'm like going, and they're saying like, that's a great name. I'm really glad you came up with that. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't remember coming up with that at all. Like, <laughs> it, I, to, to, to be honest, though, I think that's a great name. Oh, well, well, if you like it, then we'll keep it. <laughs> yeah, oh, yes, brilliant. I've had, I've had something. I've done something. But um. Does winning something like the because I wrote this down right the the women uh, women's prize for fiction and I wrote down some of the winners like Andrea mm-hmm. Levy, Neil Shriver, Zadie Smith, Marilyn Robinson, A. M. Holmes, uh, Jim Amanda Ngozi Adichie. I, these are just the novels that I've read on them. There's obviously some br- other brilliant, brilliant works on it. Um, does it add pressure when you are sitting down to 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 work on the next project? Oh God, absolutely. It really, yeah. really does. And it's it's a strange thing because I think when you're starting out writing, you kind of have in your head, well, if I get some sort of recognition, whether it's by, you know, sales or a prize or, or kind of um, attention from media, whatever it might be, if I, you know, if I reach that, if I get that, then I'll be grand after that. And I won't feel imposter syndrome mm. or I won't feel, you know, whatever whatever pressure it might be that you're putting on yourself. And that's not like it completely like it morphs into a different kind of pressure. And then imposter syndrome, if anything, for me, got worse. You know, the idea of, oh, God, they've made a terrible mistake. Mm. How do I how do I stop them from finding out? (laughs) So the idea then is like thinking, well, is this novel like is it like lightning in a bottle? You know, how Mm. do I have to how do I do it again? And now that I know that people are expecting a certain kind of thing, are they going to get annoyed if I change it up slightly Mm. or you know, it 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 is a it's a weird amount of pressure, you know, and not not one I'd recommend really. Although I do occasionally look because when you when you win the women's rights, they do give you a little um a little brass figurine, and her right. name is Bessie. Okay, she lives, on my, she lives on my mantle. That wasn't my name. That's the name of the. Of the oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> Otherwise, it's some very whimsical, don't I? And I named her Bessie. Yeah. So her name is Bessie, and she lives on my mantelpiece. And occasionally, I look at her and I go, "Okay, well, they can't take this away." Unless, no, you know, I don't think so. Anyway, they can't rescind her. No, they can't. They can't. I'm, sh- I'm sure they can't. I would have to look into it, but I'm pretty sure they can't. Yeah, it's um, never happened before. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Lisa, do you know what I'll do now? I'll read the ads. So we can get back into it. Is that okay? Okay. Let's try and get this right again. Fusion Training Center, Monksland, Athlone. A place to train in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, kickboxing, martial arts and CrossFit. A great atmosphere with experienced coaches and a real sense of community. If you want to join the team, find us on Facebook at Fusion Training Centre or drop in for a chat. Fusion Training Centre, train like a warrior. We're in the, uh, I said to Lisa earlier on, I'm actually wearing the hoodie as well. That's that's how much I represent that place. Um, but yeah, let's get back into it. I, do you know, Lisa, th- there's one thing um, I notice about the novels in general, and obviously what it kicked off with your, with your debut novel. The, the, you, the skills you have for writing multiple characters that are shaped like singular characters, rather than just having people here, there, there in different houses, and they're just flitting in and out of stories. Um, how do you keep each one of those unique? Oh, God. I mean... That's a really excellent question. And I think I think the problem is if you had an answer to that, you know, that would be you'd make your fortune off. Yeah. I, I think that sometimes there's no kind of formula for something like that. It takes for me. And again, I'm just speaking from my own point yeah. of view as a writer, because every writer has a different way of working. But for me, it would just be down to really knowing each character, mm-hmm. spending a lot of time with them in my head and kind of 
you know, enjoying that as well, enjoying that process and kind of going, well, how and so and how would so and so react to this, mm-hmm. or what would happen if so and so and so and so met in this particular place, or you know, just spending a lot of time with them, then they become more fully formed as people. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of you find that they they start almost existing outside of your imagination. And I know that sounds very strange when you say it to somebody who's not necessarily very imaginative or very creative or not really kind of part of that thing, Mm. part of that world. But the idea being that eventually a character will will feel so fully formed and real that if you try to put them into a certain scenario or you try to give them a, a line of dialogue that doesn't work for them you know it as a writer, you go, mm. oh, this isn't working. As you're typing it out or writing it out, whatever the case may be, you're going, oh, this is so awkward and mm. forced or there's something, there's nothing flowing. That That is when each character kind of really fully exists as a person. And that's kind of what you're hoping to get, I think, as a writer. Yeah, like I'm sure every writer is trying to do it. And it's, look, it's, it doesn't work for everyone. You know, it doesn't happen all the time, and which is, you know, it's just a skill in itself. But there's a couple of characters I want to touch on because it, obviously Ryan Cusack is, 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 is the he in the first novel. There's a lot of characters that kind of come to the fore. But when, when we're when we go into the second, it becomes Ryan's kind of world. And we, mm. we follow that. Um, I'm very sad that we won't hear the album. Uh, by Lord. I am, though, it's, because it's, it's like I know I'm going off topic a bit here. But in the third novel, right, your latest novel, um. Mm. There's there's little sections where you describe each song and and uh, because you know the backstory, that's what it is. And you get kind of you're so invested in the characters in the backstory. And then you're thinking, I wonder what that song would sound like. We won't get to hear it, but that's all right. But do you you consider Ryan as kind of an anti-hero? Yeah, I think that's a that's a kind of a good way of looking at him, really. I mean, for me, he's he's the heart of the trilogy, really. He really does kind of bring things along. I think he's the youngest of the characters. So I start off with like five characters um, in the very first book and he's the youngest of them. So I think because of that, you feel like he is the most potential, mm. whether it's in a good way or a bad way. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot more kind of writing on him. Um, he's he's like the heart of the whole thing, really, for me, Ryan. Um, yeah, I've gone off now on a, on a tangent. No, it, it, it's the kind <laughs> like anti because I, I was thinking of the way I was going to kind of ask the question and like was that antihero? Is he a lovable rogue? Is he you know? There's many ways you could think of it. Yeah, there really is, and, and the funny thing is, readers react to him in in very different ways. Sometimes mm. so you get some readers that get on to me and they're like, they think that oh, I just want him to be okay. You know, I really like him and I hope he's all right. And then mm. there's other readers who are like, I tell you what, that pup, <laughs> I, I, I throw him out a window. Yeah. He's like a terrible person. And I'm like, I think that's kind of, that's cool. Like, yeah. I, I, I love the idea that he kind of sets off um, different feelings in different people. You don't have to like him. Mm. There's a lot that Ryan does that's not likable. But I think you, when you're writing characters, you don't need them to be likable always. You just need them to be interesting. And I think he's definitely interesting. Would you call him like an anti-hero? Yep, like probably because hopefully he captures your interest and keeps it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I don't expect you to agree with a lot of his choices. In fact, it's better if you don't, I think, um, <laughs> because he does get himself into awful messes. And I, I think the best, the best kind of reaction you can get as a writer is a reader saying like, oh, I was nearly shouting at the page. Yeah. Stop it! Are you, yeah. you know, stop that? What are you doing? Yeah. You know, I mean, like that is that is the best possible kind of thing where you, you just want to intervene in some way. Yeah, I, I, like I, I love the character. I think it's brilliant. And it was there was a conversation I heard. Look, I don't follow 
Marvel or Disney or any of that, you know. But someone was saying that, you know, this certain film didn't work because there was no hero in it. And I was kind of thinking, well, does there have to be a hero in it? Mm, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I was always the kid that liked the villains. Like, yeah, <laughs> I think I was, they were just more interesting, weren't they? they they're like, almost like a, a hero. When you write somebody who is truly good, you don't really have to examine them. They don't really have any conflict. You know that they're not going to succumb to kind of being petty or, or kind of wanting revenge or any of those little kind of, you know, just anger or something. Yeah. We know that that won't happen. Or if it does, it won't happen for long. But villains are, are more like real people in the sense that they're completely fleshed out. They usually, well, a good villain. Mm. They're usually motivated in some way with that. And, and ideally, we can understand them again, even if we don't agree with them. Like I was always the kid that really, really identified with the baddies. <laughs> But I mean, it's not it's not just me. I know you're, you don't follow Disney and I don't either, really. But like, I mean, like if you think about the way in pop culture, especially adults, kind of people, people who grew up on various Disney films in the 80s and the 90s and stuff, it's the Disney villains they love. Or yeah. they, they've become the icons and kind yeah. of they have all the best lines, you know, so <laughs> yeah. myriad reasons for that. But but yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a villainous creature. Villainous <laughs> creature. That's good. I like that. But. <laughs> Uh, the thing about it, like, he's a deeply flawed character, but he's start when you in the first novel, he's 15 years of age. Mm. And that has to be taken into account as well. But there's another character who is my favorite character as well is Maureen, because, well, it's just I mean, she's so she's a bit of everything. She's very lovable, I think. Um, a lot of things have happened to her. Where did the inspiration for Maureen come from? Oh, so this is interesting. So for people who haven't read the books, Maureen mm. is, um, she starts off, I think she is uh, 59 at the very start of the Glorious Heresy. So she has come home to Ireland after being 40 years in London. Um, she went away after having a baby out of wedlock. Her parents, kind of like in my in my family situation, her parents decided to adopt the baby that she had. But rather than it being kind of seen as a positive thing, which was my experience, it was a negative thing in her life. So she was kind of sent almost into exile, go to London, get a job, get out of her sight kind of thing. So she's come back. She's been brought home by her son, who's now 40. He's brought her back to Ireland and and she's kind of back in an Ireland that is very changed from what she remembers. She has her kind of ideas of Ireland are still stuck in the kind of mid 20th century or late 20th century, very Catholic very kind of restrictive Ireland and she's come back like post-millennium and things have changed massively and she's still fighting this big Catholic monster in her head and, and mm. other people are like like if this part of the glorious heresies where she tries to kind of have this angry confession to a priest and I'm sure the priest doesn't a clue what she's talking about <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know what I mean because things have changed so so where where she came from like for a start I suppose me wanting to explore that kind of strange aspect of my own upbringing or, or touch on it in some way that kind of history of these practical solutions to the religious problems mm. that we had in the 20th century so when your daughter shamed the family what mm. do you do and this was a very practical and common solution was adopt the baby and and somehow kind of try and brush the rest of it under the carpet so there's that and also I think she she comes in a lot of ways she's she's a lot younger than my grandmother but my grandmother kind of has gotten to the stage in her life where she's just like on you know what I raised a massive family I've done my time I'm going to say now what I like I'm mm. going to come out with the opinions I like you can listen or not listen 
but I'm I'm fed up being nice and yeah. like that that can be extremely funny as well because my grandmother has a wicked sense of humor like she really does love needling people like <laughs> a bit of that and also Maureen I think has become very much a cautionary tale to myself I'm kind right. of going you know what girl you're gonna end up like this one now if you're not careful <laughs> I, I love about I love the you know the, the the battle she seems to kind of want to have with the the Catholic Church mm. but also the relationship that you know, she gets, she has with Ryan and the, yeah. the, she kind of, a, you know, a, adopts him in a way, even though he's maybe pushing back against it at times. But there's just something about her that reminded me of uh, a few different people that I know or knew. Mm. And in a, in a good way as well, like, but in that way where there's a, there's, there's something that it could kick off at any time. And it, <laughs> I, I think that's what's interesting about her because you know of the the way she has to talk to her son, her own son, and um, there's moments where she really has to stand up to him, and you're mm. kind of going, you're rooting for her. And I think she was the the character, I guess, I was rooting for most in, in throughout the novels. I think she was it was great. Um, there's a there's a number of themes throughout. There's loads of themes throughout the, the novels, <laughs> but we're, I just touch on 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 a couple. So there's obviously drugs, the underworld, mm-hmm. infidelity, religion, mental health, um. You know, how do like it's going back, I guess, to the idea of writing about what you know. Mm. How do you like get all of those things kind of right without sounding like you're faking it a bit? Because I've I've read that in novels where I haven't quite believed what the person was trying to say. I think the issue is if you start writing a, a novel, a story, whatever you start making, or even if you whatever creative work you start mm. on. And you have the theme in your head from the beginning and you want to make it a, a, a method to deliver your theme, then you're not writing a story or you're not mm. creating art. What you're doing is you're 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 trying to lecture people in a way, whether it's in a it could be from the most you know beautiful sentiment, but you're mm. still trying to lecture people. So if if the characters are allowed to exist in a in a novel, in a story, and their world is allowed to exist you know, without the writer getting involved and, and trying to push through what they think their own very important thoughts are. Yeah. Then I think that the stuff that you want to say as the writer, as the artist will find it's na- will naturally find a way through and mm. um, through the characters without it feeling like it's been heavy handed or kind of really pushed at it. I think it needs to it needs to feel organic. And I think oddly kind of you can only do that really without trying to, if that mm. makes any sense. I think when you're writing about characters like this, and these are characters that are very much characters from that same background that I have. So they're they're kind of like um, peripheral to society almost, you know, mm. and they're trying to they're constantly looking for that way in that's often denied to them or that's often kind of feeling very kind of out of the way or, or kind of difficult to grasp. Mm. And then those themes that you were talking about, well, they come through naturally in that kind of struggle. Yeah. You know, I mean, these are things that happen and therefore these are things that the characters will will deal with. So they do come through because that's kind of they're all part of, of life and, mm-hmm. and especially part of life where you feel peripheral to what's going on. You feel like life is some sort of big party that you haven't been invited and you're outside mm-hmm. the window looking in. You know, I mean, that's. So I think it's a natural thing, or I hope it is anyway. No, it's just because I got into my mind of, of thinking about people who tend to, uh, you know, it's cultural appropriation kind of idea of, of writing down, you know, or, or you mm. know, an author deciding that the coolest thing to write about now would be, um, you know, the underworld or, or, or even just saying something like the working class, you know. Yeah. And it, it's a big topic. It's a hot topic, cultural appropriation. And it's just... Um, 
to find an authentic writer like that, you know, I know you've been uh, compared to like someone like Irvin Welsh, um, mm-hmm. I guess kind of that under that, that working class, like obviously over in Scotland, like mm-hmm. um, I've read many novels that seem like that, like we were just saying there about that kind of idea of cultural appropriation. And they just, they never land. And it's like, you trying to, you're trying to get into it. You're trying to get, you know, uh, you feel like you're plowing. Like you said, what reading isn't always, you know, yeah. sometimes it feels like hard work. And I think that when something doesn't come across like that, it does feel like hard work. Yeah, it's, it's I think if it, for me as a reader, like it becomes immediately apparent if somebody yeah. is, is kind of trying to write about a background that isn't so much something that they, they don't come from or don't share, because it is totally possible to write mm. about worlds that aren't yours if you write about it with kind of like a bit of cop on mm. and a bit of empathy and understanding and a bit of curiosity as well. But there's often it, it comes back to that thing we were talking about, like if you if, if you come in with a theme in your arms and you're mm. like, going, I must deliver this theme. And I think a lot of those kind of inauthentic voices, as it were, are ones where you feel like the author has something that they want to say, a great philosophy that they have about mm. this background that isn't their own and that their story is a means of delivering that. You can kind of tell. Yeah, I remember when, when I was um, a kid, the, my, one of my favorite songs, still one of my favorite songs, um, Pulp, Common People. Mm. Um, and Jarvis Cocker, of course, the working class background himself. And like that, that just that spat line that he says in Common People, because you think that poor is cool. Mm. And it, it never left me. And, you know, I just <laughs> I think that was the first time I actually felt, oh, my God, he's right. <laughs> he, he does nail it, though, because the people do think it's cool. And I suppose that's what I was getting at, the idea of someone writing, you know, uh, about things that they're not uh, a part of because they think it's cool and it might sell um, more copies and stuff. Yeah, the idea of a, a working class character as well being like this earthy character mm. who's closer to desperation and so can kind of make all of these mad decisions that <laughs> yeah. you wouldn't necessarily make as a nice, secure person. And yeah. then it becomes kind of like a way of experiencing like class or grime mm. or dirt without actually getting your hands dirty. That That is like, that's that's where it really loses me. I'm just like, oh, no, there's a bit more to it than that. Actually, yeah. the vast majority of people I know from working class, class backgrounds are extremely boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, I like, I, I, because obviously you can't, nobody can see my copy of myself and it's in front of me. And the, I, I've gone from kind of a serious kind of thing. And then in, in a box, I have written Conor McGregor is a gal. Now, <laughs> No, because it's the, it was the funniest part of the whole the whole trilogy. Like it's it's a funny, like you said, Maureen's very funny. There's very funny moments and characters <laughs> in it. But the the the, the neighbor's internet password is Conor McGregor's girl. And immediately I read it. I, I was laughing at it, obviously. But I was thinking, I'd love that to be my internet password. It's great. <laughs> it's, it's actually it's it's even better than that because there's there's e- even more of a hint of disdain in it because it wasn't just Conor McGregor is a goal. Conor McGregor is some goal. Oh, it's <laughs> it some goal. goal. That is that's worse. That, like that word "some" just carries an awful yeah. lot more. <laughs> that that's that is way worse. That and you know it's gaul. Gaul is a brilliant word and it's not oh, really right. used around here. It's not really used in Atlone, right? But I do you love have it. To introduce it to to Atlone parlance. I'm gonna make a t-shirt up and just have conor <laughs> mcgregor as a gal on it but like i i suppose it rings true well i actually think he is a bit of a gal um so it just for me it's it, it makes a lot of sense but i just thought that was a brilliant light or just you know the internet pastor being that but imagine you were in some that's another thing what you know those real when you put yourself in a real life situation if mm. you did 
on your phone it came up somebody had that password and it's kind of that was running through my head when I was reading like you know um, it, does, it would totally be a thing you'd see like some yeah. people's got a wi-fi network names and stuff that you pick up is just like oh my god that's oh, so some, funny oh there's some weird stuff out there there really is like for <laughs> for passwords um at what point did did it turn into a trilogy I think it, it always I wouldn't say it always was because the idea for the the first kind of plot idea that came to me was the blood miracles which is the second book and I was like no I can't start here there's more to be said beforehand mm. and as soon as I went back and kind of tried to figure out from the glorious heresies it was immediately apparent that there'd be more after as well mm. so from like from when we sold the novel to the publishers it was like this is going to be three books is that okay <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um and luckily they were like yeah let's let's give it a go and see what happens so um yeah, I, I always knew that there would be three. And in my head, the the kind of plan for the three very, very vaguely, which I, I hope I've kept in some ways, like sex, drugs, rock and roll. So mm-hmm. the first book, when I say sex, I don't necessarily mean it's like, you know, all about the wonders of eroticism, but yeah. more about like um, Catholic shame and the family and kind of the women's roles in society and all these like underneath the, the yeah. rollicking, I hope, plot, not not as a as a main kind of treatise or anything like that. And the second book, because it kind of hones in on Ryan and, and the, the the kind of very bold things he does to make a, a few bob um, is about drugs. And that's kind of fairly obvious. And then that, that left rock and roll. So I was like mm-hmm. going, OK, we're going to go into creativity and making things and kind of expressing oneself in the in the third book. So I can I hope it kind of worked out very nicely. I'm yeah. happy enough anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's definitely worked out. And, you know, at the end of the third, when you're it comes, I won't spoil it, but like it's it comes to the end and you're kind of like, could be a fourth there you know <laughs> no, be, because there's because you've i guess it's the, the the love of the characters and you must have a deep deep love for the characters mm-hmm. and like how do you uh i suppose let those characters go after this trilogy like i'm bereft uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I i even like in my head i check in on them occasionally and i wonder how they're getting on in lockdown yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but like for me i feel like at, at where i've left it it feels like and again, no spoilers. I feel like it's almost like bringing the child to the school gates and mm-hmm. going, okay, now you have to go and do this bit on your own. Yeah. I might check in when you, on you again, the way Roddy did with the guts. Mm-hmm. Um, he checked in on the Barrytown gang after 30 years, I think it was. So yeah. never say never. But I feel like I need to move on at this this point. But I think also it's a good thing to leave to leave a reader thinking, well, there could be more after this or the characters still have lives to live because mm-hmm. you don't want people to get to the end of a book and feel like the characters just kind of slump back yeah. into a, a dark place, like kind of little puppets with yeah. the strings cut. You know, that's not what you want. You want people to kind of think, oh, they'll 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 go on and get into more adventures and scrapes from here. We just won't see them. At least yeah, you, you kind of like it's like you know any a good novel is like a good film as well. It's that idea of you you, you like to think that the characters will go on and be yeah be great and you like know they've existed before and they've existed after. Mm. It's hopefully the kind of feeling you want to give. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was talking to my last guest, Emma, just towards the end of the podcast uh, last week. We were talking a little bit about books and I said that you were coming on and uh, we were chatting a bit about that. And it, it was it's like the two of us both mentioned that we didn't read enough Irish fiction. And mm. which is a bit of a shame because, there's, you know, when you look at it, there's a lot which. It's a lot of us. <laughs> there's a, yeah. And but the. I don't know what it is like. It's not like I'm purposefully avoiding Irish fiction. It's it's got nothing to do with that. I do enjoy 
since I since I started reading properly, you know, like seriously, mm. kind of reading quite a bit, I've always enjoyed American um, novels, American short stories, and I don't know if it's because the Irish thing is here and I'm living it, and if that is it, I don't know, but. It could be, but when I read your work, or speaking of Roddy Doyle, you read the Barrytown trilogy, it feels, you know, obviously it feels like home, but it feels so much more than that. It feels like you could be related to these, to these characters, you know? You yeah. hope, hope, and then maybe not, I don't want to be related to all of them, but just maybe some. <laughs> um, but I, I think there is a hole in my, in my kind of reading um, where I, 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 I don't know what it is, and I'd love to. Do you read a lot of uh, Irish uh, writers? I do. I I absolutely do know because it's kind of it, it becomes kind of part of your writing mm. life or your work. You have to kind of you don't have to, but it, it's nice to know what your contemporaries are up to. And there's some amazing writers um, working in Ireland who who admire greatly the, the likes of Gavin Corbett, the likes of Danny Denton. We've got Nicole Flattery is amazing. You know, there's loads and loads and loads of. Yeah. And, and you want to know what they're up to, you know, yeah. and, and keep an eye on the competition. Like, but <laughs> There's that. But. It's funny that you say that because before it was published, I wouldn't have read as much of them. And it wasn't that they weren't there. Mm. Um, I think, again, like you, I kind of assumed it was almost too domestic for me or something or that it would be too. I think sometimes we read because we want to learn things or we want to be in unusual kind of places that we're not aware of or societies that we don't know are aware around. And, and we want that kind of escapism almost well, yeah. w- with curiosity, with learning about other cultures. So I can understand that. And I still I still can, you know, to my great shame, a lot of the Irish writers of the 20th century, I'm not as hot up on as mm. I should be. Do you know what I mean? So there's a, there's a lot of gaps in my Irish writing reading, as it yeah. were. But I mean, that's that's kind of like a, that's a bad way to look at it, too, because we should never kind of think of writing as as something or books as something that we you know, must read or yeah. should be embarrassed for not reading. It's supposed to be a joy. It's supposed to be things that you find um, and kind of uh, and, and learn to love and kind of discover for yourself. And it should feel like like that. It should feel yeah. like a wholly positive thing and not a thing of shame, you know. I agree because I read um, Midnight's Children and <laughs> mm. I mean, you know, it was one of those ones where I was like, I felt I had to read it. And that's a that's a problem and you could because you're going into it with the wrong attitude to, to the reading and look i did it with moby dick and it worked out you know i did it with infinite jest it was fine you know it was it was grand but you do like approaching with the wrong attitude is obviously not going to be a good thing and and you know like shouldn't be you don't need to read all the classics it's yeah it's that thing and life is short as well. If you're mm. kind of like 30% of the way through a book that you absolutely hate, just stop reading it. It's mm. not going to get any better after that point. Like it's it's not for you. And that's OK. Somebody else will love it. You know, it won't yeah. go off. Yeah. Put it away. But I mean, that said, Derek, like this year I made this effort because the last few years, a lot of the books I was reading were pre-publication proofs. So as a writer the um, publishers will send you books that they have coming out in the next few months and they'll want you to maybe you know endorse them perhaps or, or review them or mm. talk about them in some way or maybe they just want you to read them and I think for the last few years most of my like the vast majority of my reading was just books that I felt like I had to read for work and they were kind of piling up and I was going oh there's so many books that I, I've missed out of the mm. last few years in the 20th century and I'd love to go back and read again so at the start of January um, I decided, do you know what? I'm going to read as, as as few workbooks as possible, and I'm going to read books that I haven't read in a, you know ever or in mm. ages. 
and I'm going to read from writers that I haven't read enough of. And I've had the best time. Yeah. Like, it's been brilliant, just like catching up with like the likes of Graham Greene and mm. catching up with all the Bolaños that I hadn't read. And I was like um, Jean, Jean Reese and, and all of these amazing writers that I that hadn't heard of. Like um, the I just I've just had such a great time. So there's there's that as well. Yeah. And are you, are you, would that be your kind of genre would be kind of around literary fiction? Do you move towards science fiction at any point or any of that kind of fantasy not, stuff? Not really. But that said, I mean, not, I'm not against it in any mm. way. You know, um, my husband now would read like anything. Like he'd read, right. like he'd read literary fiction, he'd read crime, he'd read, you know, science fiction. His like, if you thought his to, to, to be read pile of <laughs> just like extremely diverse and kind of interesting. And then um, our kid is in um, is studying creative writing at the moment. And, and he's kind of like his his love kind of goes for science fiction and fantasy yeah. and that kind of stuff as well. And, you know, he's reading Ursula K. Le Guin now and he's like, mm. oh, my God, this person's amazing. You know, so there's a lot like almost like when you have three readers in the house, you become aware of three times the books that you've actually read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can give a rundown on them. <laughs> it's it's. If, I think I talked about this recently about the idea of science fiction is something for me that I could never like I've sat down and written short stories, but they've been kind of in the literary kind of thing, literary fiction, I should say. Science fiction feels so out there. For me. I don't know how people get into the mindset to create these worlds. And like, I know everybody's creating worlds with fiction, but it's literally creating worlds. And I just mm. I can't like with lores and with rules yeah. yeah it's like it's a whole different way of kind of thinking it's like something I find amazing like yeah. I, I wouldn't have the patience <laughs> at all and I, not just the patience I wouldn't have the imagination to work out mm. the problems within that world if I say no if, if this is the main export then what must this be you yeah. know, <laughs> I'd fail miserably yeah I, I I I can understand that was there a rumor though with the we're gonna we're gonna go with the unholy trinity from now on <laughs> um was there a rumor that it was gonna be a tv series yeah so we're we were it's still it's still in the works okay. um I think covid really kind of set it back we were kind of trundling along with production very nicely and there was scripts had been written by me which was which was great because I got mm. to go back in and look at the story with new angles because what works on the page doesn't necessarily work on the screen so you have to kind of find different ways of looking at at the story and kind of different ways into what's actually happening and Mm. and condensing things here further explaining things here like being able to write it all again in a new medium was the most exciting thing it was really cool so that was all I think I think between COVID and a few other things which I won't get into yeah um, but all external to the process that kind of affected the process. I think it's it's kind of like we put it on the back burner for now. But like, uh, I mean, like, in a way, I'm kind of thinking, you know, uh, who in God's name would you cast <laughs> for any of these people? It's uh, I was thinking that because it's something I do. It's something my mom does as well as kind of cast. And I all I was trying to think of who we, ca- who we could cast as uh, who we could cast, who you could cast. So I'm getting, I'm getting involved in it now. Um, <laughs> putting my way in, but, but Maureen, that's what I was thinking about who we could cast as Maureen, but maybe I'll think about that down the line. I know you, um, you, you've written, you've done screenwriting, you've done short stories and essays and stuff like that. Um, is there a difference when you're sitting down uh, a pro, uh, apart from the length of the piece but when you're sitting down to write a novel and sit down to write a short story I love short stories they kind of fascinate me um what's the different mindset for them oh god I mean with a short story there has to be so much more discipline I think mm. 
um, in terms of you know that you only have a certain amount of words or pages to get through what you need to get through. And again, you still have to pull off that same trick that a good novel does. You have to make it obvious to the reader that these people existed before this and they will exist after this, presuming they don't die, of course, that there is a world around where that tiny like spotlight of the short story takes place. So the discipline kind of required to create that, I find very tough. Mm. Um, there is an, an alternate view to that. Um, the Northern Irish writer, Lucy Caldwell, who's great and a really wonderful practitioner of the short story, has also kind of um, said to me before, and it was something I found really inspirational. She was saying, yeah, but because the short story is short and contained, you can do something experimental with it and not worry about how to sustain it for the length of a novel. You don't have to worry mm. about mistakes where things suddenly get saggy or flat or, or anything like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a really cool way of looking at it, too. Mm. I mean, it's the perfect length for experimenting with style or trying out something completely new or a character you're not too sure of. And kind of there's a bit more can fly in by the seat of the pants, I think, really, with the short story. Whereas a novel, you kind of you have loads of time to spend with characters. You yeah. can kind of really luxuriate in, in, in kind of their company and send them off into different places and see what happens and let the plot kind of suggest itself to you, I think, yeah. I... a bit more. I think with the with the for me for when I sit down and read short stories, uh, obviously a big 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 fan of Raymond Carver. But I was reading Emma Klein's latest uh, work, um, Daddy, and it it reminded me of that kind of style where it allowed for her to um, some of the stories are really about nothing in particular. You know, it's just but but uh, and Carver's like that as well. But it's mm. playing around with these ideas of of there's not a big reveal you know there's not this massive start to the to the story and then we're going to find out why it happened it just goes along it starts it finishes but then you're thinking about it afterwards going what what was the point of it what was behind it and you find you do find things in it it's a very strange way to write um it's probably a very brave way to write i would think too Mm -hmm. you know i i I, it was just i had that in my head because i was reading emma klein recently and and you know i hadn't read her novel actually her first novel so this was my first you know introduction to her and she's she's really really great but um for you uh when it comes to writing sitting down writing does it help your mental health i don't really know i don't Mm. think it does you know i think it's actually if anything it's it creates feelings of anxiety i think because as a writer you're the you're the only person you have to blame if the thing doesn't work out the Mm. way you wanted it to and that's frequently the case stories don't work out or you might spend ages writing a particular bit in a novel that you just know is not working or yeah. and there's no one to kind of not so much blame but there's nothing to fall back on apart from the fact that this isn't working and you have done something wrong you know so I feel that it can it can create a lot of anxiety it can create a lot of kind of um self-doubt and self-reflection but in a in a bad way in a way that you can get very bogged down in very mm-hmm. quickly um, if you take it like for me anyway, I take it kind of almost detrimentally seriously. Do you mm. know what I mean? So I find other ways then to kind of to get my mind off that. So I sit at the desk to work and it's work. Mm. But other than that, like I, I'll go for a run or I'll go and walk the dogs before I sit down. And that kind of gets the the because to me, like I feel the mind and the mental state are connected wholly to the body. You can't kind of neglect one and hope the other is going to be okay. It doesn't really work like that. Mm. So for me to go out and kind of do something, get, get the body kind of going, do some exercise, get some fresh air, whatever it might be, kind of puts me in a better frame of mind to sit down and do kind of the hard slog as well. And then 
important to be able to wind down in the evening because otherwise I will lie there in bed. If I've been working up to bedtime, I will lie there in bed. And I won't sleep because I, the brain is still kind of hammering away mm. madly. You know, what's the so obviously you've do, you walk the dogs, you go for a run. What, what else do you do to, to to unwind in the evening? Yeah, um, I'm I'm a fecker for the video games, but the weird <laughs> thing is, the weird thing is, my, my my son gives out to me because it's the same ten video games I've played all my life, and I'm not changing now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm yeah, very yeah. kind of stuck in the mud. At the moment, I'm replaying Fallout New Vegas for right. about the eighty fifth thousand time. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was playing it there last night, and my husband says to me, he kind of said something. I was like, "Excuse me, there's a cutscene going on. Somebody's a character is speaking." He's like, "As if you don't know exactly yeah. what you're going to say." <laughs> but you enjoy it, so that's yeah. what, you know. That's all that counts. And there's probably a, a, a kind of a mindfulness in knowing that kind of thing. Playing it eighty five times. It's kind of like there's not a big amount of stress as there might be with a new video game. I, I think you're right, actually. You've kind of already learned the processes. You're kind of almost comfortable in this little virtual world, you know. And <laughs> there's a control aspect to it because, you know, if you do this particular thing in mm. whatever sequence it is, it will work. Yeah. And that in itself can be very kind of comforting. It can be very rhythmical. Yeah. You know, I feel like I, I've often said, I think I've said in previous interviews, like as, as far as I'm concerned, Final Fantasy VIII is yoga to me, you know, I mean, just like <laughs> going a... playing with stats for six hours in a row. God, I love it. <laughs> yoga, I like that. Nobody's ever described a, a game like that as yoga, but it's good. Um, would you describe yourself, because I obviously follow you on Instagram, would you describe yourself as a foodie? Um, I'm certainly an eater. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. a bit of a foodie. I'm a bit yeah. of a foodie. Like, I, I, I like cooking. And I like, I definitely like eating. Um, I'm big into it. And I think that it's quite amazing, actually. In the last, I think, we'll say 10 years, but probably a bit before that. But certainly in the last 10 years and so, Ireland has really come on mm. in terms of food that it offers in more casual restaurants, not just like their fine dining, but casual mm. restaurants, street food, stuff like that. Oh, my God. Some of the like the innovation, I think, in, in Irish um food and also the kind of new pride in Irish produce mm. and kind of um the the business side of it as well the young chefs and what they're trying to do they're they're kind of creating things and at the same time there's there's again like you say that kind of confidence is coming mm. through and for a long time I think we were kind of you know the Ireland our joke about ourselves was and this is this is all like a national mm. lack of confidence we were all like oh we're so bad oh, we eat as potatoes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. You know, we live in an island in the North Atlantic. We get actually well able to to create some amazing stuff up here. And we have and we yeah. do. And I think so for me, um, yeah, I, I tend to to celebrate that side of things quite a lot. It's a far cry from the days of kind of like the 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 boilish buds and, and carrots. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I um, I, I just because it's the way you seem to admire it through your lens, uh, food, and you can tell that you're somebody who really <laughs> enjoys eating. But um, you were in you were in France recently, actually, and obviously yeah. the French are renowned for the cooking. But mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you because you did take a picture of the the glorious heresies in French mm-hmm. on the on the uh, bookshelf, and I wonder, it got me thinking how it translates over because yeah. it's it's because and look this is the same for every you know other country going across to another and you know, with a different language that how well can they understand cork you know as a as a, <laughs> as a place like because we like i think everybody outside cork is still trying to figure it out so it's it's like 
I wonder how it translate as a, it translates as a novel. And I'm not just talking about the, the, the language that the people mm. are speaking, you know. Well, you see, the thing is, every country has a second city with a chip on its shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot more in common. What's, Fra- what's France's second city? Oh, it's Lyon, isn't it? It must be, or Marseille, I'll be Lyon. No, like a, a French person would be re- listening to this. And, How dare you be livid. Marseille? <laughs> they will not listen to this podcast again. Um, <laughs> yeah, you have a French boycott and... You know, the French are very good at letting letting them letting people know when they're. Yeah, they do like a protest. They Uh, do. They're very good at it. Kind of something I admire, actually, in many ways. It is pretty good. Yeah. But um, in general, it's I think translation is a sort of magic. And I don't again, don't just mean the kind of like taking one word and putting it into another Mm. language. In, In order for a literary translation to occur, you need to have not only obviously fluency in both languages, but an understanding of the rhythms and the patterns of Mm. one and what they mean and how it sounds to the ear and try and be able to capture that energy mm. into the second language as well, while still, you know, making the, the idiosyncrasies of, of, of the language and the country kind mm. of knowable to a reader. It's, it's, it's a total, it is a kind of magic to me. And I think it's a really profound act, act of connection almost, you know, mm. to try and try and make a story from one place understandable and something that people in another place can love, you know I mean? Yeah. So I've been translated now into, I'm very lucky, into about 10 languages. Oh. Um, and it, it's it's really, it's a great privilege to me because mm. I'm monolingual. All I can speak is English. My, <laughs> even my Gaelga is shocking, you know? I mean, like, I mean, I can speak Galway English and I can speak Cork English. I suppose that's, that's hey. what I have to do. I mean, I mean? Cor- Cork English is the hardest English. Um, it's certainly the liveliest. You're gonna <laughs> yeah. know. I will fight people about this. I'm I'm very fond of Cork. I'll be on. I'll be honest with you, uh, Lisa. I love the Cork accent. I I'm, I'm mad about it. Yeah, just, it's <laughs> so melodic. I'm I'm I've absolutely swallowed the Kool Aid when it comes to Cork. Like <laughs> I went to Cork for the first time when I was seventeen. Not for the first time because I had cousins down there. Like, mm. Cork was my holiday destination. I never went abroad. Right. Cork was like my Algarve <laughs> but when I went to Cork by myself for the first time to live I was 17 I just turned 17 right and I think and I just started UCC and I think when you go and find you know wherever place you find yourself in and that first taste of independence that becomes mm. your place you kind of knot your way into it and it knots its way into you so Cork is very important to me in that sense um but yeah trying to like I do a lot of um, kind of talking with my translators. I'm very lucky when they want to talk because sometimes mm. everybody has a different way of working. Some translators really don't want the author's input until maybe the very end when they're trying to make sure of this particular thing or that particular thing. And you have to understand that as an author. Mm. It, it becomes kind of, it's less your work now and it's kind of a collaborative work and if the translator wants to do whatever they want to do to make it right, then they have to do it. And you can't read it anyway, so you can't, mm. <laughs> you yeah, can't say point. they're wrong. So like for the likes of Polish, I, I don't know who my Polish translator is. Unfortunately, mm. I never got a chance to speak to them, which is a great shame. But I have great relationships with my translators in in Italian, particularly. And the book did quite well in Italy and it, it won one prize and it was shortlisted for another. And French and Spanish and German and Czech, you know, so right. really, and it's 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 just been it's been very exciting for me to kind of speak to people who are kind of their their great passion is taking your words and it is a passion because like mm. nobody gets into translation for the yeah. money because there's no money in it so they do it for the love of words and the, to be able to kind of speak to somebody and exchange ideas with somebody is so fulfilling and it mm. really does kind of give you a better understanding not only of the world but of Ireland's place in the world mm. and how we're seen 
And like the amount of love that's out there for Irish literature, particularly like the likes of Joyce and, and you know, the, the great Irish, um, the canon, I suppose that's mm. a particularly the likes of Joyce and Beckett and Yeats yeah. and Heaney. God, the love that's out there is really, it would take like, but yeah. like the funniest thing I think I heard, I was in, I was in the Czech Republic doing a, um, an event based around the Czech translation of the book. And at the end, when they were asking for audience questions, person at the back puts their hand up yes and it's like um yes i'd like to ask um have you ever seen the young offenders i'm like going what <laughs> this is not the question i was expecting that is random <laughs> the person was czech it wasn't an irish person like <laughs> i mean i mean it's a, like it's random because it's obviously in czech it's, it's a cork it's a cork it's based in cork as well isn't it yeah yeah um i was very disappointed not disappointed but i was very uh again it comes to that thing of the two la- I heard the two lads interviewed from the Young Offenders and uh, the dubs, like, well, one of them's a dub for sure, but um, the Cork accent's perfect on them. It is, it's perfect. But the thing about Cork for me, right, I want to put in here, because my, my father will give out if I don't mention that he does have relations on Cork as well. It's just my <laughs> mom is from Cork and it's closer in that sense. And my grandfather is as well, obviously. But uh, we used to go down there. We used to go mm. down to Mallow and when we were kids. And now it wouldn't be wouldn't be maybe every year that you know maybe every second year because uh, mallow needs to be spread out it's just too intense is to it too intense is mallow too intense is it i haven't been i haven't been to like i don't remember going into the town of mallow it was always just kind of like the houses that we went to <laughs> but there is a town there it's, it's quite a, an impressive town center actually is it? i must insist you visit mallow again <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to mallow i'm going to mallow this week um uh, Lisa, I want to ask you one more question, and this you look, you don't have to answer this question, but do you have a favorite novel? Oh God. I know it's an awful question, isn't it? I um don't make me choose between my children. I think yeah. um I'm probably proudest of the writing in the in the most recent one, um, The Rules of Revelation. Mm. And that's probably because I should be, you know. I mean, like <laughs> you should feel like you're you're kind of improving or that you're developing in one way or another as you write and so so logically I should be most pleased with the writing mm. in each book as it goes on I think I have a real soft spot for the blood miracles and that's because it's kind of the second dark chapter you know that yeah. kind of thing like it's not the most lovable of the three definitely it's probably the most serious of the three but I think because of that I'm kind of like my misunderstood baby <laughs> yeah I, for me it was like obviously the glorious heresies I've read that twice so it's kind of obviously, you know yeah it's obviously it might fresh in my mind and stuff but uh, the rules of revelation really kind of started to catch up with it as I was reading it it really started to catch up and I was kind of and look I love all three and that's you know it's not I'm not having a go at the blood miracles by the way I really like blood miracles but it is the more serious and you, it you is, know. It is but yeah the rules of revelation is such a good uh, novel I'm so into music that's probably another thing that kind of you know it kind of brings you along with it like um but uh Lisa McInerney it's been an absolute pleasure having you on for, for a chat been- so much fun, Derek. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank no, you. I, I really appreciate you having on. Listen, could you stick around just till I end it out and I'll take a quick picture with you and then we'll, we'll have, we'll go on away for the Sunday, all right? Um, I want to say thanks also to John Francis for doing all the technical work that he does um, as I always do to my mum, my dad, my granddad, Jura and Calvin for the music and the logo. Find us on YouTube, um, subscribe if you would find us on instagram you can follow lisa on instagram too actually um i should have asked lisa to say that you know but it's, it's okay and um, find us on facebook and on twitter spotify apple anchor google podcasts etc thanks to everyone for watching thanks to everyone for listening and once again lisa thank you very much oh thank you uh we'll we'll talk to you next week take care everyone bye